mean, there are times we do operate in an alias and you're actually a completely different person. But you're assuming the persona that will make you interested and interesting to the target you're pursuing. You're listening to The Live Drop. My guest is Douglas London. He's the author of The Recruiter, Spying, and the Lost Art of American Espionage. Doug's a pleasure to speak with. With 34 years of experience in the CIA, his memoir is rich with authentic personal encounters of a case officer. Doug walks me through some of the many things going through a case officer's mind throughout all stages of spot, assess, develop, and ultimately terminate a relationship with an asset. Sounds more violent than it actually is. Uh, Doug has a profound appreciation for those who put his trust into him and claims it's an unethical job that has to be done with ethics. We also discussed the state of espionage, the post 9-11 changes, and where things are headed now. Begin transmission. I have to admit I underestimated the amount of time it would take me to read it. There's a there's a lot there's a lot there. It's a, it's a challenging interview. It feels like you left an awful lot on the field. <laughs> well, that's that's hopefully a good thing, but then it's it's this is great. Yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely a really good thing. You know, it's something that um I just want to say just kind of that really struck me about uh, this book was the, um, I mean, you described it initially that you t- had to take a lot of the descriptions out. You had to t- you change some of the, you know, the names and so forth, but it created this, um, I wouldn't say antiseptic, but it, it created this, uh, it, like the scenes you have with, with your different assets and so forth. They're refreshingly void of distractions, <laughs> you know, or, or I find myself paying an awful lot of attention. I find myself paying an awful lot of attention to behavior and you're really effective at describing, oh, he scratched underneath his eye for a moment. Then he's, then he spoke, you know, there's some little moments where you, where you're describing people's behavior. And I'm just wondering, is that something that, is that a skill that you, that you worked on or that you developed? I think it goes with the territory when, when you're a case officer and you're trying to depict your target or your asset, it's all about what's underneath the skin. You know, it's all about what, what's in the heart and the mind. So it's less about how tall they are, how wide they are, you know, how many teeth, you know, what have you. It's about the human dynamic. And, and that with everything that got uh, taken away and redacted is still there at the end of the day. It's about the person. And that's fundamentally what human uh, operations is all about. I mean, every time you had a meeting, I suppose you have to write up a report. Yeah. I mean, if it isn't written up, it didn't happen. So right. uh, you document everything. You, you write up what your plans are in advance. And then you write up how it went afterwards because you need a living record as we're always looking at cases to assess and validate them, make sure everything's on track. Have there been any changes? So it's a really living document, a living case file of, is there anything there that should worry us? Has something happened with this, this agent? Have they been doubled? Have they been compromised? Have they gone through some life experience, which has changed how much we could rely on them or, or their veracity? Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering those, do you ever get to see those reports again, or are they just forever put into a vault? They're revolted for me from here on out, yeah. But they're stored in some way, I suppose. Yeah, there's there everything's kept so that, you know, we could people who continue to handle the cases can take a look back on the history of the case, or if something happens and we needed to go back and find a note agent to determine, hey, is this somebody we had in our past who might be valuable again? Or something goes wrong. If something happens to the case, even years after we've left contact, do we owe that agent something? Is there an obligation? And how do we get a hold of him or his family or her family? You've written some articles recently in Just Just Security about the, I mean, you're dubious about the over the horizon policy. And uh, I was reading some of your articles as far back as the Trump and Soleimani strike. 
in January of 2020. And, um, you know, I do want to sort of address that as we go through, but primarily my interest is, is really that personal meeting, that human meeting that, you know, that you have with assets as you, you know, develop, spot, assess, debrief, or spot, assess. What, what are they, everybody has a different. It's spot, assess, develop, recruit, and then it's turnover or terminate. And terminate, not in a lethal sense, just in the sense of ending a case that you, you know, no longer meet the agent. In turnovers, there's warm and there's cold. Yes, there are. So warm is when you're physically providing an introduction to your successor, which is preferable because then you could try to transfer the rapport, the trust, the relationship, but also you can review obligations. Mm -hmm. So we have obligations to an agent. The agent has agreed to undertake certain missions for us. You don't want an occasion where if the agent and the new case officer meet and the agent goes, okay, well, you owe me this much money and here's what I'm usually doing. And and that's not the same understanding that the new case officer has from the file. So warm turnovers are always best. Imagine some like young case officers showing up and go, all right, Rudolph Abel, here's how we're going to run things now. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know? and it's never like that. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be a partnership. You know, yeah. the agent needs to cede operational control to the case officer for their security, but it has to be a voluntary surrender of that, where the case officer is not the expert on the country or the agent's job or whatever their mission is, but they're the expert on operational security. It's their job to keep them safe. So it's never like treating somebody like an employee or a subordinate. At least it's not supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be where it's, it's a partnership, but a partnership that's slightly unequal in which the case officer makes the decisions with input from the agent about how we're going to meet, what our operational profile looks like, all the steps necessary to keep the agent safe, because that's what the case officer is trained in. They may know a lot about Russia or China or whatever, but they're not a, a Russian missile designer. They're not a Chinese intel officer. They're an American. They're trained to make sure they handle someone from whatever country, whatever culture, in the most operational, secure way. So that person stays alive and healthy and happy about the relationship and doesn't get in trouble. You cited one relationship, Ilias, I think it was, but it was someone from the someone from the Middle East, and you described um, a turnover, but the agent had so much more experience than the case officer that I don't know if it was you or somebody else in this, this story, but you learned an awful lot from this agent. I mean, it reminded me of uh, you know showing up as a platoon leader. I mean, sure, you're in charge, but you're platoon sergeant who'd been in Vietnam. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to demur it to, to him on some things, but um yeah, I just wanted to know if you could comment on that. Yeah, well, that's why, you know, a case officer has to be a very secure person. Right. Because, you know, and it's a weird contradiction because a case officer is also usually very egotistical. They have to have a bit of swagger and cockiness considering what they have to do for a living and the risks that are entailed. But they have to balance that with a willingness not to be the center of attention, which usually people with a big personality or big ego, they want it all about them. They want people talking to them, laughing at their jokes, and and them being the focus. So you have to have those same traits, but you have to use them in a way where you take the backseat about yourself. You're more into listening than into, you know, more into receive than into send, because that's your job. So, you know, here I was with Ilias, and I was a junior case officer. I was early in my career, one of my first tours, and Ilias had been around for a long time. He was very senior in his own government, in his own organization, he was a very thoughtful chap, uh, very much an intellectual, very much a very polished gentleman. And he had seen me come and go, just like you said. 
they you take over the platoon as a second lieutenant, and you know the platoon sergeant has seen second lieutenants come and go. They've gone through God knows how many of them, and they do their job to support the lieutenant, but they also try to mentor in a way the lieutenant to make sure they get it right for the troops. Elias was a lot like that. You know, in fact, when he looked at me and I was with my colleague who was turning the case officer, and my my colleague was older, much more senior than me. And I got the case because they wanted a case officer with deeper cover to protect Ilias. And my colleague who had the case had been around a little bit longer. He wasn't known to be an intel officer, but his cover had started to erode over time based on his seniority. So they shifted it to me, the young chap at station, because I was new. And they would need to take time, the local service, to even figure out if I was a threat. So Elias looked at my, my, my buddy. He looks at me. Back and forth again, he goes, another young one. You know, sort of, sort of taking on the fact he's going to have to break me in a little bit, right? But he was a perfect gentleman, and he gave me enough room to be the expert without letting my personality or hubris get in the way of, you know, doing the right thing just because he said something. If he introduced an idea – for his operational security, and it made sense to me. I was like, that's a great idea. So it wasn't automatically a knee-jerk, oh, no, anything you come up with is, you know, going to be bad because I'm the pro here. So I learned a lot from Elias based on his manner and his ability to do that in a non-threatening, non-provocative way. And I also had to make sure I got past my own ego to know, you know, this makes sense, this doesn't make sense. It's not a reflection of me if we take his idea or we change something. It's what's best for the case. Right. You know, and you have a lot of a lot of examples in the book, like, sure, this relationship, it's um, some have said it's like dating. He said, no, it's more like dating someone who has uh, uh, what was it? It's like dating someone with a jealous spouse who's a homicidal maniac. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's that kind of hanging over it. Add some excitement to it, possibly, you know, but uh, it, it makes it more interesting. You definitely have to be a little more discreet, I suppose. I mean, there are some parallels in getting to know people and how you disarm someone of their defenses so they're willing to trust you. So from a dating perspective, you're probably doing that ideally with the best intentions, right? Because you want a relationship. In spying, it's about manipulation. So you're being deliberate and conscious of the tools you're using about how you leverage personality traits, characteristics, styles, and engagement, and such like that. Because you do want that partnership. You do want that intimacy. You have to have that intimacy based on what you're asking this person to do. And again, the operation control over their life. It's not easy. These people are living double lives, uh, sometimes triple lives in a way, right? And to carry those secrets, the burdens of that, and for you to be able to keep them steady, keep them reassured, that takes a great level of intimacy that only comes with a profound trust, which gets you into that whole father confessor thing more than more than that of a dating relationship. Yeah, you described in here how you how you have to quickly just quickly figure out what it is that they want. Yeah, I mean that's or figure out what it is that they what it is that they that they value or what'll be your your angle or your your hook. I mean, is there is there a term for that? Well, you're assessing them. It's all about your assessment, and you're assessing their motivations and. What a case officer needs to do is sometimes they have the benefit of target analysis. So that recruitment cycle that you were talking about, it generally starts with target analysis. Can you find out something about the person indirectly? These days, do they have a social media profile? Can you find out about their likes, their dislikes, their interests, their family, what they seem to be concerned about? And that will help 
inform your approach because your approach is going to be based on the persona you're creating. And I'm not talking about an alias persona. I'm talking you are who you are. You're Mark, I'm Doug. But are you going to be, you know, um, glad handy, laugh, laugh at the party, Mark? Are you going to be serious academic, Mark? Are you cerebral, Mark? Are you reserved? What is the persona you want to shape? What are your interests? So if you have the benefit of target analysis where you may know something about your target, either from open source or you may have an agent who's reported on this person, someone else in the same government agency or ministry who knows of, if not knows them personally, who could tell you a little bit about them. Uh, you know, oh, this person loves collecting butterflies or is a flower or herbologist or something like that. So all of a sudden you love flowers or birds or, or plants and herbs so that you find a way to serendipitously introduce that so it doesn't make them suspicious. It's not so heavy handed. So what you train young case officers to think along the lines of you need to be interested and you need to be interesting. So you need to be interested in them because everybody likes people interested in them and automatically makes them feel good. I mean, almost any human being, whether they're wonderful or evil, whatever level of the spectrum, they like when people think well of them, respect them. So if you could come across with a sincere interest in them, what they do and maybe how they do it, you know, with casual, seemingly casual remarks that are very deliberately injected, but not so heavy handed, like, Oh, you look so young to be accomplished at this age. I mean, you want to make me get that across, but in an even-headed way. But then besides being interested, that only goes so far. You want to be interesting. Mm-hmm. They need to see something in their benefit for having contact with you. And it's not just going to be validation. It's not just going to be, oh, this person makes me feel great about myself. That might get you in the door. But to sustain the time on target that you need to sort of do all that disarming and getting to the next level of intimacy, they need to see something as if it's their idea a value in you? Is there something you can do for them professionally, for personally? I mean, it could be as simple as, do you have access to a particular magazine on birds or flowers they can't get in the country? What is it that's interesting about you? So that balance of being interested, that they think, oh, this person is easy to talk to. They're a good listener. They like me. And also, I really like that maybe they could help me, you know, find out about this new bird species that I've been tracking because I can't get these materials in my country, or, you know, they have some insights on health. And, and I've got a son who's suffering from, from an illness that isn't very easy to treat in my country. So you put that balance together to get you time on target because it's really a bait and switch, isn't it? Yeah. You're approaching yeah. them with one persona and one goal or one agenda or no agenda at all, but you do have an agenda. You have a very clear agenda and you have a roadmap for how you can get there. And you're slowly, ideally, over time, transitioning that relationship from birds or or their health. And all these will still be components. These are things you can do for them to, you know, you have something of value that I need, but not in such a, a mercenary fashion. You need to make it seem like what they have that you need is also of use for them to achieve their goals because they have displeasure with their government. They may be incredibly loyal to their country, but they have issues with their government or they have issues with their organization or they have a a certain need that trumps some of their own values to allow them to do things they would not otherwise do. We talk about a precipitating crisis. There's lots of people who have motivations at their employer, right? They don't like their job. They're mad at their boss. Somebody got promoted over them. 
but it's not like they're going to start, you know, stealing from the company or, or in espionage providing secrets. So what is it that goes from these motivations and takes them to a willingness to do something that's very high risk, that's not necessarily in their best personal interest, but helps them achieve a goal? It's usually some crisis in life, either, you know, moral, personal, health, whatever, because people think it's just throwing bags of money at people. If that was the case, you know, there'd be a lot more spots. There'd be a lot more criminals, but it's not about money. Money can sometimes be the tool that gets people to what they need, but it's a lot more than that. And that's what the case law starts to figure out and then leverage. There's a moment that I'm fascinated with. And I guess these meetings are, you know, when you're kind of giving the pitch and, um, there's a couple of there's a couple of things that I'll, I'll, I want to sort of pile onto it before I say it is I mean I know at the agency they say okay we don't coerce people it's not our policy to use um, coercion or blackmail but um, you know after you after you've met with a person a couple of times and then you do have that moment where you you more or less admit your own motivations right I mean you say listen I I am an officer of whatever and uh, you know I I would like to would like to work with you I don't know how you would would phrase it. I imagine you probably have a little, you know, a little card with how to, I imagine there's like a little diagram of how to do a pitch, you know, A, B, A, B, and C. But I, I was thinking in that moment, right. When you, when you do it, admit that, and I want to talk more about that, but inherently isn't there somewhat of a blackmail or coercion going on because you've already met this person a couple of times, possibly overtly. And when you admit that you are working for a CIA or some intelligence organization that, um, that they are somewhat in jeopardy just by knowing you or already knowing you? So those are, are two points there in what you're saying. They're both really relevant points. So when you get to the point of pitching someone, it has to seem almost serendipitous that you're an intelligence officer, that you work for CIA, because you certainly right. don't want the target to think that this has been a setup from the beginning, right. that you, know, you targeted them. That, that People don't feel really good about that. So... <laughs> When you get to the point of the pitch and you introduce it, you have to introduce it as if it's a good thing. It's that, you know, I've really enjoyed our friendship because I love butterflies and I love, you know, National Geographic magazine. And it's been great because it allowed me to get to understand your country. It allowed me to get to know you as a person. And you've helped me see the challenges that you are facing here because of your government or your system or whatever. And, you know, as a matter of fact, there's something that we can do together about this. So instead of making it, you know, in any way seem like you're, you're targeting them, and it, it could, should be very genuine that you really do have this trust. You really do have common interest in, you know, installing the, the institutions of freedom and democracy and human rights. I mean, one of the great things about being a CIA case officer is what you're selling is legit. I mean, I believe it when I sell it. I, I, I know I'm not naive. This is about what's in the U.S. national interest, about protecting our security. But our institution is one of democracy. And at the core of that is a respect for human rights and promoting that over the world. Now, we don't always do a great job of that. And we make some colossal mistakes. And we've seen that over the last 20 years. But that's what Americans like to pride themselves in. And it's at least the best version of themselves they want to be. So that's what I'm selling overseas when I'm talking to a Russian or, or a Chinese official or an Iranian or a North Korean about making their country more to what they want it to be, which is a mutual goal. And wow, it just so happens I can help you. In fact, behind me is a whole institution 
that can help you achieve that. And that's how you have to deal with that. And, and you deal with it sincerely because to an extent, I, I believe that's true. Yeah. The coercion piece, it's not just about us being you know, morally appropriate or having a great moral compass. If coercion really worked, I think, you know, we might do more of that. We might, uh, you know, embrace this ends justify the means. But while a number of services, a lot of them do, particularly the Russians are very big about coercion. The Russians, the Iranians, mostly you'll find police states, autocratic societies rely on it because that's just their magic, their methods, what they do at home to kind of suppress domestic uprisings and tensions and keep an eye on the people. But you want your agent to be a partner. You want them to feel that this is their idea and they're fully invested. And the reason is twofold. One is the the ability to assess and validate their intelligence requires us to know what their true motivations are, to understand really do they have the access they claim. And even if we understand they might have a certain perspective and perhaps even a bias, we'll try to catch the flavor of that in our reporting because people are making decisions based on their reports. So if you have someone who's coerced, how could you rely on their information? How could you ever trust that they're going to not put in things that are wrong to try to deceive you, to protect institutions that they care about or protect themselves? It's a lot harder to to stand behind an intel report from somebody who's being blackmailed into doing it. I mean, for one thing, they're going to do the minimum necessary. But for another thing, as we even saw through the CIA's enhanced in, in, interrogation program and, uh, that with people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Abu Faraj al-Libi, two previous ops chiefs for al-Qaeda, they told us some truths, but they told us some whoppers to protect what they thought was most important to them. You don't ever want to have that with an agent. You, you know, agents make mistakes. Agents sometimes lie to you and agents sometimes lose their access, but you want that ability to evaluate their intelligence. The other side is my protection. If I blackmailed some person, I still need to meet them clandestinely. That means it's you, it's them, and it's me on the street. And particularly if I'm in a hostile environment, if I'm in a, an environment that's hostile from a counterintelligence perspective, like Moscow, or in a hostile environment from a counterterrorist perspective, like Beirut or Karachi, do I really want to meet them in a lonely alley in the dark if they might then be setting me up because they've only been working with me based on coercion? They might at some point, you know, oh, wow, I went to the meeting, but Doug didn't show up to their next case officer because Doug was kidnapped or killed. So I also depend on them for my operational security. So blackmailing somebody is not a great way to secure that. But I was thinking, isn't there a slight degree of it going on? I mean, I love how in this book you refer to specific terms. I mean, like, you know, the warm and cold turnover, but also you talked about, you know, sparring and kind of weighing out what the possible courses of action this person could take either just behaviorally or after the meeting. Like if you initially made a pitch like that, that target has the option of going to their, whatever country's counterintelligence people and reporting, right? They, they always do. When what's to stop them from doing that? I think the fact that maybe that they've met you in public would, would uh, dissuade them from doing that. Is that consideration at all? I mean, it's, it's certainly consideration because if you think about what's in their best interest. If they've had this relationship for me, a CIA officer, for weeks or for months, and I probably haven't pitched them until I've seen them starting to compromise information, until I've seen them willing to pass things that they shouldn't be passing, to break the rules, because I'm not going to pitch them until I know they're going to break the rules and they're going to share privileged information. So if they've already gone down that road, 
it should be in their own understanding that if they then turn around and go back to their counterintelligence service, they may not come out of this all neat and smelling clean. It's not something I use as leverage, but it's really addressing their own considerations and self-interest. Is it in your best interest to tell your service that for the past six months, because they're going to get to the bottom of it. If you do, if you turn back into the Soviet FSB or, or the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, they're going to go through a fine tooth comb and, and they're probably not going to be very humane in how they get their information. So they're not just going to trust this person and say, I didn't do anything wrong, but I'm letting you know this now. If they had done that at the first meeting or two, they might have been a little bit safer to say, hey, I didn't know where this guy was coming from, but he started asking about work. And I was like, I got the, the, the willies about that. But it's a little bit late in the game, particularly if they're in an autocratic society, a police state, to think that they can go back and, and not suffer some consequence. So they don't have to say yes. I mean, we want them to be a volunteer, but it should be understood. And we try to explain to them that it's it, it's in their best interest because probably in most of these countries, I may get arrested, I'll get thrown out. That's not going to be their fate. So it really genuinely is in my interest to protect them, even if they say no. And it's generally in my interest to say you know, I really, I, I understand you don't want to do this, but consider what the possibilities are. And the possibilities are, are much often worse for them than for me. Yeah. Yeah. You're not just selling a vacuum cleaner. That's right. <laughs> right? A lot more There's consequences if, you know, things could happen. Have you had any, uh, I wanted to say pushback. You talked about honor the oath. I've met people, intelligence community who are just tight-lipped. They won't say anything. Some have gotten their rollback, I guess you call it, and are able to reveal certain things. I was just wondering if you've gotten any any resistance or any pushback from from writing this book. I mean, you didn't exactly, you know, give the curriculum at the field tradecraft center or whatever it's called, whatever the course is called, even though you're a teacher there. But um, I was just wondering if you got any pushback from it. So um, the agency has a review, uh, the, the, the free publication review board, right. and everything I write, whether it's an article or, or my book, goes through them because I do want to protect secrets and sources and methods. And they'll review it. They'll redact things they think are classified, uh, and they'll redact things they say are classified, which sometimes aren't so much classified as maybe a little bit uncomfortable. So I've had good success with the PRB where – when I was pretty com- when I was confident, not pretty confident, that something wasn't classified and they redacted it, I would push back and demonstrate that it's been in the public eye or, or provide them details. And often enough, we'd be able to negotiate. I could see where the sensitivity points were and try to respect those boundaries, particularly if they were serious about trying to help me get it published, but in a way that protected them, protected the organization. The maybe pushback or criticism I've gotten is from some of my colleagues. And it really depends on the nature of their experience in the agency. So those who have been most critical have been those who profited from the system that I'm criticizing for the last 20 years, the post 9-11 CIA, that I believe had a significant cultural shift based on um, adopting missions that were not in its best interest and sometimes not in the country's best interest, which really changed the, the hierarchy, which changed the chemistry, which changed the culture of the organization. Those who profited over the last 20 years, who rose up to the highest ranks and then leveraged those senior jobs for positions, the belly bandits, with defense contractors, with um, energy companies, or with foreign governments like Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates, where a number of my colleagues are advisors or advocates or local lobbyists. 
Uh, those have been very critical. Senior officers who didn't profit from that, who left either just after 9-11 or even before 9-11, have been very supportive. And they likewise were concerned by what had happened to their agency, by how the complexion of the agency had changed. And then those in the rank and file or who were in the rank and file, the workforce who since left the organization have generally been very supportive. I haven't seen criticism, but I had a, I had a sharp uh, critical review from uh, a former colleague, a former boss of mine in the Cypher Brief, which is kind of a, if you might know it, it's, it's mm. a very interesting online and, and media group and they, pr- they do a lot of articles, but he felt threatened by what I said. And it was interesting that his review of my book was, it should be a primer on operations and tradecraft, but should never have been written since he broke the oath and no one under the position of director of CIA should ever write a book like this, which basically validates my point that those folks who profited in the post 9-11 CIA took care of each other and tended to rally the wagons and circle the wagons when something went wrong, as opposed to having a sense of accountability to correct mistakes like the tragedy at Coast, where I lost seven of my colleagues in a bombing that should have never happened because it's a meeting that should have never happened. In CIA's putting out a national intelligence estimate about Iraq that justified our invasion of Iraq, which was wrong, which was false. In the enhanced interrogation programs, the torture of detainees, they're still defending that. They're, they're not acknowledging mistakes. And rather than sort of a adding blame, if not to an individual, if it was a case of malfeasance or incompetence, because things go wrong in spying. That's part of spying. You need to have a tolerance for that. You need to learn from it. But where it's like, let's protect our own, or in fact, crush the careers of those who speak out. The post-9-11 CIA, unfortunately, was instead of speaking truth to power, it was quite the opposite. It was about self-censorship. It was about not uh, questioning authority. It was about not questioning your leaders because they were set and what they said was golden. If you were going to advance, you needed to be you know, on the obsequious side. So the whole truth to power thing sort of went out the window where, you know, prior to this error, even as a junior officer, I could respectfully sort of office offer a different point of view and say, you know, that's an interesting idea of how to do that operation, but we might be able to do it this way. And I'd be able to make my case. Now, those senior officers, not now, I, I think things are changing again for the better. But before this post-9-11 period, you didn't dare offer something. You'd be eviscerated. And you might not even have the chance because the most senior officers weren't even engaging lower levels of the workforce. They just wanted their, their lieutenants because the lieutenants made them happy. They gave them their happy story. They told them what the good news story was, which allowed us to make a lot of tragic mistakes. And being an intel service means it's in your best interest to identify your own warts, address them, and come up with a mitigation strategy to protect the operation, to protect the people. But I think the CIA got so much into this policy world, which started as defending itself from a perceived existential crisis after 9-11, that the agency might be done away with entirely, that the agency was going to take the fall for 9-11. And the agency did a lot wrong, but they also did a lot right. Actually, if you look at the reporting in which they were sounding the alarm bells. What they did wrong was they didn't share. They didn't talk to other IC agents. They didn't have this sense of transparency, which does exist now. That much has changed. But it was an organization that was the first to see, okay, this didn't work right. 
let's fix it instead of promoting the people who made the decisions that went wrong and then squashing the perception of dissent. And it wasn't dissent. It was honest introspection. So I'm totally against leakers. I I think um, whistleblowers are great who work internally where there's something illegal, but leakers don't really do any good. If you put out classified materials because you think you're helping to tell the story, you're actually making it harder and you're hurting your your country's security and you're killing agents probably in the process. So what I sought to do was approach the issue of accountability, approach the issue of culture in the agency by in a way telling a love story about espionage and how important espionage is, how risky it is and why you need to be accountable at least internally to make sure you're getting it right. And then our relationship with the public to secure that confidence has to be through an honest system of oversight where, you know, HIPSI and SISI, you know, the Senate Committee on, on Intelligence and the, and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence are doing their job behind closed doors so they don't have to play the game of, par- you know, of political partisanship. They just want to know the truth. Are you doing the job right? They may not agree with the policy and they'll let you know that. But are you doing it right? Are you doing it legally? And are there measures of effectiveness that this really is achieving in the U.S. country and the U.S. national interest? So people elect their representatives to do that. And we also have a director of national intelligence who's supposed to be that umbilical cord between the public and the IC to, one, provide space for the IC to do their job safely, but also to show that there is oversight, there is accountability. And when things go amiss, whether it's diversity, hiring diversity, whether it's, you know, treating the workforce fairly, whether it's doing things legally, that the DNI will account for that without giving the details that could compromise operations or people. Something else in your book that, that jumped out at me, I hadn't really thought about is that you, that we needed the, the Department of Defense can't do covert operations. Right. And that's kind of a plausible den- with any denial or anything like that. I mean, that you have to be involved in those. And I suppose that was probably a kind of this inspiration of this rise in the PMOO in, in, the, in the ranks of, uh, of CIA. And, uh, so on covert action, the idea is the CIA should do it not because it's good at it or it's an easy button, uh, but because it's the only agency that could do it deniably. So when you get to a point that everybody's talking about these kinetic operations so openly it's being done by the U.S. government, it's not so much deniable anymore. Right. right. So, but I'll give you an example where sometimes a fig leaf is good enough. So I talked about the Soleimani strike. Um, Qasem Soleimani, the, the, the chief of the Quds Force for the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Force in, in Iran, uh, was a threat to United States interests. He was involved in activities and operations that had historically killed Americans and were likely to kill Americans in the future. The decision to actually remove him, to kill him, was a significant choice to make. I don't know if it was necessarily the right choice to do it because he's the leader of a sovereign, uh, he's a leader in a sovereign country with which we're not at war, but we chose to do it. So if those who are carrying the burden of protecting the United States, you know, the president, our elected officials, and they make that decision, then at least do it deniably in the sense that were he to die from a stray hellfire missile in Syria, that nobody claimed, sure, people figured that must have been the U.S. or maybe it was Israel. But the Iranians wouldn't be compelled to retaliate. When we did it openly with U.S. Air Force drones and the president of the United States quickly got on the line and said, that was us, what choice did Iran have? 
to have not retaliated would have made them look weak, would have, to their point of view, risked their own control internally and certainly their their credibility abroad. So they had to strike. Right. And I think in a way, they tried to do in a way to limit the escalation because you know, they had those missiles on the on the on the, the platforms for a long time. Smoke was coming out. It's like the missiles are here. Look after the missiles. Missiles are coming, and then they just happened to miss every target. I mean, they still caused damage. We had over a hundred soldiers, I think, with a traumatic brain injury from the concussions. But that not a single person died. Do we think right. that was an accident? They were so close, particularly in Erbil. They're just across the border. There's plenty of Iranians in Erbil. They know exactly who we are, where we are, and they didn't strike any targets. So I think had we done something like that, deniably, but still uh, probably us, then from a political point of view, it would have been safer for the United States' interest because we wouldn't have suffered the retaliation. Or do it like the Russians, do it overtly and then deny it anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's an example of that. And the Russians are achieving their goals because it's a message. It's a message to dissidents. It's a message to defectors that, We'll find you, we'll kill you, and by the way, we're going to get away with it because there's no punitive response where I think that's where we should find some way to answer to that, but probably likewise through the shadows. You know, I watched the James, did you watch the latest James Bond film? Not yet. I promised I'd wait until I could see it with one of my daughters who we, we have a, a tradition of going to James Bond movies together. Okay. Well, a little, I'll, I'll do a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a spoiler, but you'd have to admit that James Bond became a little bit more paramilitary in the past ten to fifteen years. Well, he always was, though. James Bond was, you know, when did you see James Bond fill out a travel account? You know, when did you see James Bond be told, you know, James, you can't travel first class. You're traveling in the middle row economy seat because those are the government statutes. So, you know, James Bond is a lot of fun, and, and I enjoy watching James Bond. I can't watch Homeland because Homeland is just. You know, things like Homeland or some of these other things is like so unrealistic, but I can suspend reality. But James Bond does have charisma. And and I think, and not to make this a show about James Bond, what I like about Daniel Craig, he's made James Bond more of a person. He has emotions, he has sentiments, he gets happy, he gets sad. I kind of like that, that he's a warrior of sorts. Okay, fine. You know, I could, I could live with that. But that he's more of a person, I kind of like. That's a little closer to reality. Anyway, you're going to love the movie. I, w- I won't go into it anymore, but I, I, I love it. I, I, I was like, oh my God, I'm crying at a James Bond movie. How did this, how, how did, how did this happen? You know? I look forward to seeing it. You described something in your book about this incredible sensation um, of going black. I have to admit, I sort of identified with it for a completely different reason. Where you said, no one knows that feeling of, oh, no one knows who I am right, yeah. right now. It's, it's an amazing sense of power and control. And I think case officers, by the nature of their job, are control freaks. They try to control everything they can because in human operations, you can't control everything. There's, you know, you never know who will accidentally be at the same place as you at the same time who you don't want to be there, or the train you're relying on to get you from one part of town to another breaks down or is off schedule. There's so much you can't control. So you're a control freak to control everything you can in meticulous planning. So getting black, that is getting to a time in your day where the local counterintelligence service has lost track on you or isn't looking for you or doesn't know where you are, that's the window in which you're conducting your clandestine activity. That's when you're meeting your agent. So that's when you're doing whatever operational mission you're conducting that has to be secret, has to be clandestine. And there's a lot that goes into doing that, and that which I'm not really uh, at liberty to say, but you 
do a whole lot of things, trade crafty things, spy stuff to get black. And everything's very well planned out. Everything appears like rap, uh, random and, and, and ad hoc, but it's all planned. And it's all planned, not just in one day, but it's a lifestyle that you're creating a pattern so that you can get black. And that feeling as a case officer, when you know you're black, you, you've used a formula because there's a formula we use and you've used your tradecraft and your discipline. You feel like you own the night. You own the street. You own the country in a way that you can have your way with the country, if you would, in a terribly perhaps on PC kind of way to steal their greatest secrets right from under their noses. And just like a good con, they'll never know it. That, that sense of power and control is, is enormous. My, my only experience with that is I, I used to be on a soap opera. I mean, so I, I mean, I was an actor for a while, various levels of, you know, fame and, um, but I never really, uh, I remember, uh, you know, but those moments where you would go somewhere and nobody knows who you are. Oh God, it would feel so good. Oh, you know, yeah. You know, suddenly it's like, uh, I'm not on, I'm not pretending I'm, I'm not. And there's another thing, there's some other similarities I noticed where you talked about how, you know, you had been used to not necessarily playing different characters, but, you know, occupying different personas and and roles. Right. Right. And um, what, what was that like? kind of playing somebody else professionally like that? Well, we're all sort of amateur actors and amateur psychologists. In fact, I would say we're actually professional psychologists just by time on target by what you do. But you are, as you said, you're living a persona. So generally, you're you're who you are. You're, you're a true person. I mean, there are times we do operate an alias and you're actually a completely different person. But you're assuming the persona that will make you interested and interesting to the target you're pursuing. So if I'm you know going after a, a, a colonel who's a power trooper, in his country's army, I'm going to leverage my own airborne training. I'm going to leverage my time as a Marine. And I'm not going to come across to try to be comparable to him because I can't pull that off. Right. Yeah. I'll be very genuine that, you know, I, I did five jumps just to get my, my wings and I was in Marines, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a special ops guy and stuff, but that's enough to get you in the door. And that's a persona I would hew to that, you know, maybe being a gun enthusiast or, or whatever that goes with, the marks of being a military person, right? And if I'm approaching someone who's more cerebral, a scientist or, you know, someone who's more academic, that's the role I play. I get more into more introspective, more cerebral, more philosophical personality traits to try to ingratiate myself. So you could code switch. Yeah, yeah, basically, uh, because I want them to like me. I want them to let me in. So what's going to get me in the door? And if I pick the wrong persona they're going to just, by default, just be defensive, right? If they're very soft-spoken and shy, and I'm all like, hey, how you doing? And all hard-charging, <laughs> they're going to like be backing up on me, right? So I need to kind of suss out, who do I need to be this evening? Who do I need to be when I engage this person? What's my persona here? I'm still me, I'm Doug London, but I'm that aspect. So you're also, you're also, you're also Doug Danger, too. Well, yeah, that was that was. <laughs> That's thank you. That's a that's a nickname. We all had nicknames when we were going through the paramilitary course. That just have to be mine. Um, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that was that's when I still have um, old friends who still refer to me as Doug Danger. But you, you are you are who you need to be a chameleon, if you would, to to bridge that innate defensiveness all people have when a stranger approaches. Yeah, and you say you know, I mean, you describe to people you were a problem solver who who managed risks, but. Um, you said also that retiring offered you the ability to to emerge as as who you were, and I'm just wondering if there were any surprises 
<laughs> oh, well, you know, um, my, my youngest daughter is, a, is an engineer. She will be. She's an engineering student. And she's very clinical about things. God love her. And I remember I was, I was, you know, I think retirement, divorce, death, those are all like the, the significant um, times in life where you go through this cathartic or at least introspection. And so I was a little sad. I was a little depressed. I'd been a spy for over 34 years. And, you know, I was like saving, you know, man and country and whatever like that, or at least trying to play a role, at least felt that validation. And she's like, you know, dad, I know that it feels like life as you know it has changed and that it's over, but it's really a whole new beginning. And so while she lacked in bedside manner, her message was right. And, and I got to do things that I always wanted to do and never could. I mean, I couldn't even be on social media. We were, my wife and I, we were on, I think, Instagram just to stalk our teenage children. But other than that, <laughs> you know, we, we, we had no right. you know, profile or anything. Um, I was always on when I was working because I had to be, like you say, about always being on as an actor. I was always on because being a spy isn't something you shut off. Um, if you're, particularly if you're in the field, you always have to be situationally aware. You're always conscious of threats, of risk, and you're creating a routine, a persona, another persona, to hide and conceal your espionage activities. So here I was. I could be who I was. I could see people if I wanted, not see people if I wanted. I didn't have to worry about doing something every day to be consistent with a pattern of life. And it was kind of liberating to be able to have an opinion that I could expose, that I could be public about. So it allowed me this whole kind of entryway into academia and writing and writing op-eds that still made me feel, okay, I'm getting the satisfaction out of hopefully contributing and maybe starting or adding to conversations that I personally think are important, but I don't have to worry about how this is going to impact me or, or, or God forbid, my family or certainly my agents. So it was liberating way, but it also, the book really was a cathartic experience because, you know, we all have our demons and, and, you know, I, I acknowledge up front, I'm a flawed person. Uh, I, I made my share of mistakes and I could sort of look back and try, if not exercise my demons, at least kind of address them and meet them and, and talk about them perhaps ideally in a, in a healthy way. One thing that seems to kind of emerge in that culture is at least recently is, real willingness to admit your your faults your mistakes your 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 failures you know it's better for you to reveal them than somebody else to yeah i mean they have life or death consequences that's exactly right and and we we, we lose people in our business we lose colleagues uh, we lose agents and and that's painful any regrets oh i'm sure uh, i think somebody said i think it was who was it some somebody interviews people and they always ask that question but it's not always the best one to end an interview on. <laughs> well, tell me your tell me your biggest regret, and then we'll. Oh, that's great. That was Doug London, everyone. There you go. So you know, life's about choices, and and yeah. the next thing now is you don't always have choices that you react, but you're still choosing. You're making choices and decisions, often with you know an ambiguity of of situation, dynamic circumstances. But I know I, I make mistakes, and I, and I think in some cases in my book, uh, and it's also kind of helpful for me to kind of put them out there, what I should have, could have done, what I might have done different. I have no regrets about the business I went into. I have no regrets about my mission and what I sought to accomplish and what I hopefully accomplished over 34 years. I have no regrets for the ways I approached it. I talk about espionage being 
an unethical business that you try to do as ethically as you can. Uh, so I stand behind what I did um, and mostly, mostly, I guess, how I did it. But there are choices I made, things I might have done differently, certainly choices I made that affected my family. Because, you know, unfortunately, it, it's a very obsessive business to be in. It really, it becomes who you are. So it's hard to separate case officer Doug London from father or husband Doug London. So I know without doubt that I have made my family suffer and sacrifice at times where, yeah, maybe I thought I was doing the right thing professionally, but the impact on them, where were my priorities? And, and that's, that's a sad thought that if my family doubts where my priorities were because of that tug of war. And, and I think I, I perhaps could have made some choices different. I don't know if I would have in the same circumstances because I have right. been driven by the same thought process, but, you know, backing up now, looking at it and over those years, sometimes like, Ooh, you know, maybe if. Now we come to the part, which is the 12, um, the dozen decisions. Talk about choices. I'm going to give you the 12 decisions. Oh God. It's just okay. A or B. It's, they're, and they're not too, uh, they're not too crazy. Okay. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with these. I'm just going to kind of collect all the information probably send it to analysts somewhere and create an artificial intelligence version of you that can oh, walk awesome. in that, for, that can that do the really next. <laughs> so the next interview is with the AI version of, of Doug Leno. Oh, I don't think anybody wants that, but, but okay. <laughs> All right. Um, first question, the bump or the pitch? Well, uh, the, the bump and the pitch are probably equally hair rising. So you're asking me to choose between one or the other. If I get to choose him, well, I'd rather do the pitch. You do the pitch. Okay. Yeah. Bumps are a lot of fun too. Stripes or solids? Oh, I'm sorry. Say that again. Stripes? Stripes or solids? Oh, stripes or solids. Oh, God. Okay. Stripes. Stripes. Okay. I didn't realize it was a fashion thing. I was thinking like <laughs> in the physical, something solid or, yeah, okay. But okay, I'm, I'm back. What'd you go with again? Solids or stripes? I went with stripes. I went with stripes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, this one's probably a little more media related. Sandbagger or the prisoner? <laughs> I don't, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that because I don't think I could define him well enough. Sandbagger or, or the prisoner? I, I guess I'd rather be the sandbagger than the prisoner. Sandbagger. They're both. They're actually English TV shows about about espionage and spying. But oh gosh, see, and I, I don't even know either of them. So, but you pick sandbagger. I pick sandbagger for what it implies to me. Sandbagger means somebody who has more control. A prisoner has no control. A sandbagger is somebody who's active, who's doing something. You're sandbagging somebody. If you're a prisoner, then you don't have control. So the control freak that I am would pick being being a sandbagger versus being a prisoner. But I don't know the programs. Oh, that's oh, that's that's an interesting that's an interesting. Freaky, huh? Think about yeah, this. I like that. Yeah. Um, let's see, uh, surveillance or counter surveillance? Counter surveillance. Okay. So, but just to help you in a, in a spy's lexicon, when we think of surveillance, it means we're following somebody. Um, mm-hmm. as opposed to looking for surveillance. And I think counter surveillance is probably closer. So I'd rather be um, the rabbit, uh, in that case, in the hunter, because I'm going to outsmart the hunters. So that's why I picked counter surveillance. It's more fun. Okay. Right. Uh, crunchy or smooth? Crunchy. Crunchy. Truth or dare? I like truth better, actually. Facts or feelings? Wow, that's really hard. I know it's only A and B. So... A case officer relies on feelings, which is basically experience reinforced. So it's based on clinical data as well. But if I have to choose, it also means the facts. So I have to go with facts. Eh? Okay. 
Benedict Arnold or Aldrich Ames? What's the lesser two evils there? So Aldrich Ames being more contemporary in my life and having killed people that, you know, I know of and care about, I I have to pick Benedict Arnold, who at least had some noble intention, but was doing something that was going to have devastating consequences for his country. But still, if I I got to choose, I got to choose. choose. Okay. That's a really hard choice, but uh, Let's see. How about wool or cotton? Cotton. Beirut or Berlin? Beirut. Black bag or burn bag? Black bag. And the last one okay. is live drop or dead drop? <laughs> uh, dead drop. Dead drop. Oh, another dead drop person. Why dead drop over live drop? Just more re- reliable? Well, Less um, vulnerable? I mean, it, it probably it's me and my definition. I, I know what a dead drop is. A dead drop is, you know, an impersonal communications. So if you mean an agent meeting or a dead drop, I'd pick agent meeting. Because okay. I'd rather have personal contact with somebody than just deal with them indirectly. So if that's what you define by live drop, then I would pick live drop. But if it's like a different form of putting down a foot emplacement or cash or something, you know. But I prefer personal. I prefer, I like that intimacy. I like that relationship, which is why I kind of wavered on feelings versus fact. Right. Because a lot of being a spy is feelings and then your intuition and then, you know, discerning the person. But reporting is always about facts we report the facts that's what we do well there's definitely a lot of facts in your book and um there's it does arouse some feelings as well <laughs> so <laughs> i think there's a, there's a lot going on in that book anyway this has been great and no this is this has really been one of the more fun conversations i've had a lot of the the podcasts i have are a lot more clinical if you would and just kind of like rigid and current events and this I like because espionage is a life and it's a lifestyle. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I like the opportunity to kind of treat it as a living, breathing thing, which was fun. Oh, great. Well, thanks. Really great to meet you, Doug. Thank you very much. Great to meet you. I hope you stay in touch, Mark. Thanks so much. So that was my talk with Douglas London. Uh, Doug continues to share his thoughts on intelligence, espionage, and current events at justsecurity.org. You can also find him twitter and at douglas london five and i'd also like to thank um, everyone who's contributed to the show with the one-time paypal and also the the live drop patreon special thanks to tomio toyama with your generous contribution anyway that really inspires end of transmission <laughs>